Yes, welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. Welcome back. This episode, we're going to talk about illusions first, because I don't know what else to talk about right now, but I feel like doing this. So we should start illusions. Most of you know are sort of glitches of perception, or that's how most people would see them. And I think personally that it's actually just learned perceptions, and I would consider illusions to include also um, to also include perceptions that are accurate, but not um, but they're being pulled up from memory essentially instead of being observed directly from your senses, which I think. In reality, most of our perceptions are filled with this kind of information, with this kind of illusion data. So when you look at a three-dimensional box, for example, um, there is some part of your mind that is attributing some kind of three-dimensionality to it so that you can more easily process the box. And it probably does so by looking at the um, lines and edges of the box and kind of matching these uh, perceptual data with uh, memory data so that, for example, your mind has some kind of filter or bias that is in the shape of that three-dimensional illusion. And once your mind recognizes or starts to... um, feel that that is going to be what you're looking at, a box in specific, then your mind will tell you that you are seeing a three-dimensional box. And then uh, with a lot of the optical illusions, some of them are even centered around this kind of 3D box perception where you might see something like a table, for example, where the legs, there'll be three legs where... um, uh, at the bottom, I believe, there'll be four four endpoints, four legs, but towards the top, you realize it kind of meshes and there's only three different legs going downward. And this essentially is bringing up the memory of that object, but not uh, correctly because uh, the image is designed to recall those perceptions when they're not actually accurate. And so you could see how basically it allows us to look at the world more minimalistically so that we aren't, um, we don't uh, have to see an entire box in order to perceive it as such. And so one of the things that I've kind of written about before is that um so i love this fact that uh people with schizophrenia do not 
tend to experience optical illusions the same. Um, they've tested with this illusion known as the hollow or the inverted mask illusion, where you essentially take a mask, and if you look at the inverted side, it actually appears as if it's facing you. And um, with schizophrenics, they don't experience the perception that the mask is facing you. They actually can detect that it is hollow. So you can have like two masks, for example, one that is facing you and one that is facing away from you. Um, normal people cannot easily tell the difference between these two, but the schizophrenic does not see the optical illusion, uh, which means they see uh, the they more easily can distinguish between those two. And I have a lot of explanations for why that would be. Um, so, for one, uh, one of the mechanisms of schizophrenia is that they have a inhibited activity in these receptors in the brain that are linked to perception and memory, both. So, the way we know that that is the case, that these receptors are linked to memory and perception, is that when you block them with drugs like ketamine or PCP or other anesthetic drugs, uh, you obviously experience anesthesia where you lose your senses, but you also experience amnesia where you lose your memory. And it, this goes for recalling memories, but also um, encoding new memories because the mechanisms of... Recording memories involves something called like long-term potentiation, with that involves NMDA receptors among a bunch of other receptors. I'm not going to go into technicalities right now because that will, uh, I don't know. You get the point. So basically, um, the that's one of the mechanisms of psychosis. And when people take PCP, ketamine, or other anesthetics. They have what is known as psychotomimetic properties. Um, what this means is it essentially just uh, mimics psychotic symptoms. And that includes hallucinations, um, perceptual distortions, uh, memory problems, delusions, uh, a lot of cognitive issues like attention problems, and a whole host of things. So what my, uh, I guess, theory about this or hypothesis would be that when people take these drugs that, uh, in a dose-dependent way, I believe that they will um, modulate perception in, on a kind of spectrum. So, so there's a point where you reach what is known as... Um, I think it's called um, oh dissociative anesthesia, where you are no longer basically in contact with the external world. And this state of mind tends to differ from sleep uh, on brain scans. It tends to... Um, uh, I don't know, there, there's lots of strange things about it, the kind of patterns that arise 
uh, in brain activity. And uh, essentially the idea is that brain regions stop being able to communicate with each other, producing a kind of very low conscious state or a lack of consciousness in a way. And so along the way though, you get many symptoms. If, if you've ever heard of uh, people tripping off ketamine and PCP, and there's also one known as dextromethorphan, which is actually available over the counter. I do not recommend anyone do that. But uh, with that one in particular, there's actually um, there's actually a thing known as a, a paper online known as the DXM FAQ. And I highly recommend you go read this. This paper is fascinating. It's in so much depth. They have um, everything is indexed, so you can you can basically click to read whatever section that interests you. It goes into mental health, safety precautions, um, the different stages, the different effects that different doses produce, um, and it really articulates them pretty well. It goes. Um, it goes into the different kinds of perception. For example, one that really tripped me out that I loved is that some people seem to have claimed that they have experienced a sort of, um, I do not know how to even title this kind of effect, um, but basically what they found is that um, they would experience a sort of monochromatic cycling, uh, strobing cycling effect upon their vision where uh, it would be like a black and white perception, but then a red perception, then a blue perception, then a green perception cycling rapidly between each other uh, in a way that's like flashing like a strobe light essentially. And I think that's really interesting. And a lot of the effects that have been recorded with this dextromethorphan uh, online, they kind of reveal a lot of the mechanics of the brain because what this chemical essentially is doing is shutting things down, shutting the activity of cells down. And I don't know, this, this is very interesting. So um, before I go further, I'm gonna actually pause for a moment and reorient myself. Okay, so now that we are back, um, so we were just talking about DXM, and, or dextromethorphan, I should say. So some of the interesting things is that there is a kind of spectrum in which you lose your sensation as you increase the dose. And some, uh, some have recorded... Uh, in this DXMFAQ, they note that your perception can actually be increased on the smaller doses. This is kind of one of the basis for uh, why I think illusions are dependent on this NMDA receptor, and I think that illusions are essentially a uh, learned perception. It's a sort of autocorrect of your perception. That is the best way I could put it. So, um, so if you consider that when you experience 
uh, different things with your senses. Let's just stick to vision. When you uh, experience vision, um, you would not. Uh, you would have to form a sense of object recognition, right? And hold on, I need to think how to put this correctly. But basically, you could see vision as essentially just a bunch of pixels at the lowest level, and then you start to notice patterns between the pixels in which you form a kind of uh, reduced or abstracted uh, perception from that. So, for example, um, when you first look at a box, you might see um, the edges you might not necessarily associate to each other, uh, and you might not even associate a single edge of an object as being an edge. You might see it as indistinguishable from the background. You might see it as indistinguishable from the object. But as you are exposed to this object more frequently, you will notice many patterns of the motion and uh, different aspects of your perception of this object. And so I think what illusions are is pretty much our sense of meaning in our perception. So that the fact that we can identify a box is... Um, in some sense, an illusion. Um, but so, uh, if you look at it though, going from basically a spectrum of individualized pixels into a complex visual experience, um, the highest form of this experience, I would say, is highly dependent on illusions. And so, what I think what happens when people take this dextromethorphan and experience a supposed boost of perception, I think what is occurring is that they are turning off the highest layer of perception first before anything else. And as you do this, I believe that you are essentially taking away those illusions and revealing a more complex visual experience, which actually I would argue is not that very, not as beneficial to our functionality. I think that, so for example, um, going back to the schizophrenia thing, how schizophrenics may tend to experience less illusions. Um, one of the common hallucinations that they get is they sense that there are bugs crawling on them. And I've actually experienced this a few times in my life. And what I've noticed is for the first couple weeks, I believed that it was bugs. But then after carefully analyzing this experience and kind of rationalizing it, like I did not see bugs, for example, I have come to the conclusion that it was actually my body hair and light sensations that are being perceived that I am attributing to being bugs. And the reason for that, I think, is that normally we have an illusion that filters out our own body. So, for example, and, and, and I should say that the reason for filtering it out is likely because we experience our own body more than anything else in the external world because we are stuck in our body we are stuck to our body we can't really um but like say if i touch um someone 
else I will feel what they feel like much more because I am not stuck to them and I have less exposure and essentially less tolerance. So so I've not had enough time to form that kind of numbness and filtering. And and this this is a concept that I think extends to drug use as well. So for example, drug tolerance is a kind of numbing experience. And if you, um, sorry, hold on. So, so with tolerance, for example, um, what's interesting about that is that these drugs like dextromethorphan, ketamine, and PCP and any kind of NMDA blocker tends to reverse the tolerance to drugs and also reverse depression. And what I think is interesting about that so, so I should clarify with addiction, uh, there are theories that state that addiction is essentially just learning and that tolerance is also based on learning. And it's thought that the NMDA receptor is critical to that process. So when you experience, um, when you block these receptors, I think you're essentially giving yourself a tolerance break to many things including the drug, I think it, like the drugs, whatever drugs you're addicted to or using too frequently, I think it um, blocks all the processes involved in the effects that you would experience on that drug temporarily. And I think that also includes the negative feelings that you get when you don't take that drug. So it's not that it would just uh, precipitate any kind of withdrawal experience necessarily. It's not like you would take these drugs and experience a horrible feeling. But anyways, so going back to this addiction and also depression uh, thing, or I'm not sure if I mentioned the depression yet, but I think, so with ketamine, for example, there are studies that have come out showing an 80% efficacy in treating depression with only a few uses of the drug. And what I think occurs is that people with depression have built a tolerance to their hobbies, their um, uh, to pretty much just life in general. They've built a tolerance to experiencing happiness, a tolerance to whatever it is that they do in their life that they've lost interest in or become depressed with, whatever... Yeah, you get the idea. So when you take this drug, I think when you're taking ketamine, it detaches you from experience, from life, from uh, your senses in a way that when you come back, you've actually, in a some sense, reversed the tolerance to life itself. So right here, I'm about to move into another section. I think I'm going to go into um, detail on the DXM FAQ document a little bit because it's pretty interesting. And so to conclude the illusions section for now, um, basically, I think that um, so NMDA receptors are involved in learning and perception and I think illusions are a form of learned perception. In some sense, our brain learns how to autocorrect for which perceptions we expect are most likely because of probably how hard it is to process vision. 
And I think this applies to all the senses, actually, not just vision. And I would actually say that we should extend the definition of illusions to any autocorrected perception, even the ones that are actually correct. So, um, a lot of our vision, or, uh, for example, there is the inverted mask illusion where we tend to see the mask, an inverted mask, as non-inverted. We see it as a facing, uh, a face that is facing us. And uh, when we were, when we experience an actual face facing us, that I think is also covered up by an illusion, and that both of these perceptions are. Uh, both the perception of the facing away mask and the um, facing towards us mask are both um, overlaid by an illusion of a face facing us because that is the most expected perception. And I think it's just that we've been exposed to faces so frequently that we've learned to sort of assume what it will look like. And there's some more interesting things here. I think that, um, so I think that hallucinations are kind of the errors that we would make uh, that are not autocorrected. And I mean, I'm not sure if there should actually be a distinction. It might be, uh, I'll sh show you what I mean. Be there shouldn't be necessarily a distinction between illusions and hallucinations, I don't think. Um, so I think, for an example, that what happens if you say you block NMDA receptors, I think that turns off these memories and illusions and even your senses are reduced. And when you, in, let's say you have a blocker in your system, or let's say you have schizophrenia where you have a down-regulated NMDA receptor problem, when you take something that boosts NMDA, I think what happens is we, it uh, increases learning, increases uh, memory formation, and it probably increases tolerance to everything, as well as um, increasing illusion formation. I don't know if I already said that, sorry. But so when this is happening, I think if we still have blocked memories and blocked receptors, uh, blocked memories and perception, the problem will be that we're forming a newly created illusion based on a state of reduced awareness of the external world and reduced awareness of our memory of the external world as well. And the problem would obviously be that we're going to f uh, make a bunch of errors based on the lack of information. So I think this is actually why a schizophrenic person taking a psychedelic might actually result in psychosis. Um, anyways, I think uh, that might be it for this section. So I'm going to go into the DXM FAQ at this point. Um, this document is essentially a 
very massive compilation of everything noticed by the um, by people taking this dextromethorphan chemical. And it's separated into four different dose ranges that they describe as plateaus. There's, uh, so what I think about this document is I honestly think it's one of the most valuable things, one of the most valuable resources for learning about what the NMDA receptor does. Now, there are a few problems with using it to understand the NMDA receptor. For example, it, the dextromethorphan chemical has many other effects other than the NMDA blockade effect. So that means that a lot of these effects may have nothing to do with the uh, effects on NMDA. Uh, what I do think, though, is that most of the research on chemicals that block NMDA tend to have effects largely having to do with sensory experience, memory, and a couple other things, but I think I'm going to really just focus on sensory and memory because I think we could almost be a little bit more certain that those effects are coming from the NMDA activity. Okay, so I guess we'll start with the first plateau. Um, let's see. So, the first plateau, the sensory effects. Some people say that sounds are richer and deeper. They say that um, it's more euphoric. People compare it to cannabis, but um, somehow music is perceived as a much speedier um, experience. Uh, let's see. So there's a plane flying over. I don't know if you could hear that, but... Okay, anyway, so there's usually not really any visual experiences um, with this range of NMDA blockade. Uh, they say that there might be motion trails, um, which is described as each after images of each frame of vision were not clearing quickly enough. There could be a deterioration of stereoscopic vision and thus depth perception. Colors can seem more vivid. People have noted that the, their peripheral vision is degraded. Taste and touch have not been appreciably affected. Uh, and just to clarify, a lot of this I'm actually reading straight off of this document. So, uh, some of it I'm paraphrasing, but I just want to clarify that. Um, some have noticed an enhanced sense of smell, and so much that they can't remain in the uh, vicinity of the smell. Okay, so what's interesting about this range is that um, some of the effects appear to be an enhancement of sensory experience. 
Um, especially that last bit about the smell. And it's interesting because smell is linked to memory more so than other senses, as far as I'm aware. At least it's more able to recall senses, or no, recall, um, recall, I guess, experiences, memories. And, um, something that's known is that when you first begin to block the NMDA receptor, I think it actually causes a glutamate releasing effect. And I can't remember right now if that is due to the fact that I don't remember if it releases glutamate or if it, I think it does. And I think also there is an effect of reducing GABA release, which would enhance the effects of, um, of glutamate because GABA usually blocks glutamate. Okay, so what's interesting is that, um, let me think, uh, actually I think that's about it for that stage. That stage isn't very interesting, uh, but I think it's really important to note that first you experience an increase of sensation, and it's probably that once you, um, as as the glutamate release is increasing, I think there's also the fact that NMDA is being blocked, so you'll, um, there'll be a kind of ratio change of glutamate activity where you're blocking it increasingly, and there'll be a point where it doesn't matter that you're increasing glutamate release so much because there's too many receptors being blocked. Okay, so... Oh, it looks like there's actually... That was just the sensory effects. So, this cognitive effects. It says in the first plateau that there are not many cognitive deficits. Language appears to be strongly affected at this range, where uh, syllable and word repetition tends to occur. Um, this is something I've noticed, I think, that people on stimulants would tend to do, and I actually think that um, certain mental illnesses cause this kind of uh, repetitiousness. Let's see. Um, some of these effects appear to be similar to thought disorders, like it mentions. So what they do... Uh, like as an example is if you said the word banana, it could be banana, nana, na, or um, spoonerisms, which they say is, you might say share boulders instead of bare shoulders. And then also there's the kind of tip of the tongue phenomenon where you can't really remember which word you're trying to find. <laughs> Some report that they are more creative and capable of linear thought on this range, and also in the second plateau. Um, let's see. It says that people do notice a stimulant effect that is enhanceable by caffeine, it appears. And there is a lowering of inhibitions related to conversation and lesser 
to a lesser degree behavior, so it's mostly related to what you're willing to say, it appears. Probably part of that is due to um, blocking out uh, fear and um, other things. I'm not gonna speculate too much on that effect. Okay, so mm, motor effects are not that affected. Memory, not too affected, but usually they notice a deterioration of short-term memory. Your train of thought can become stuck in repetitious thoughts. Um, encoding of new memories appears to be worse. Okay, so now we're going to go to the second plateau. At this, um, people report a sort of stoning characteristic. Closed eye hallucinations may begin to start at this. Music and motion-based euphoria may start to diminish. So music in the first plateau may sound quite great, but moving up, you actually start to become numb to it. Okay, so now we're going to go into the second plateau. In the second plateau, um, and just to clarify if this wasn't already apparent, um, the plateaus are just uh, levels of dosage of the dextromethorphan chemical. So it's just increasing dosage levels where um, people have noticed a significant change to what the effect is so like for example some of the effects are contradicting um, stimulation might be experienced in lower um, amounts while um, depressive symptoms would be in the higher amounts okay so with the sensory effects um, they have found what is known as flanging, which is a very interesting effect. So they call it phasing, flanging, stop action, framing, and strobing generally. It's the idea, it's the experience that your sensation or that continuous sensory input is being chopped up into frames as if you're watching a badly animated cartoon. So it's basically like a lowered frame rate effect, as far as I can tell. Um, there's often an echo effect involved where between frames there might be a repeating frame. So it another effect is that depth perception is usually lost more at this um, range at the second plateau. Um, sound is also undergoing that flanging effect occasionally. And there seems to be a delay between the stimulus and recognition of the stimulus. Pain is reduced. Taste is dulled. 
Um, some people seem to claim that smell is vastly improved, which is kind of interesting because it's known that I think people who take or that use nicotine frequently tend to lose their sense of smell. And what's kind of interesting is nicotine, one of the receptors it binds to, I think it is the nicotinic alpha 7 receptor. It has a, it uh, connects to NMDA receptors through connections called heteromers, and it just essentially means that there can be cross-activity between those two receptors because of a physical connection. And um, so it could be that the opposite effect is occurring with um, when people are taking nicotine. People notice that their sense of balance is severely disrupted at this plateau. Um, their sense of bodily position is warped, and um, it is essentially similar to what alcohol would be doing, which also actually does block NMDA receptors to some degree. I don't think it is a full antagonism, but I don't remember on that. So closed-eye hallucinations would tend to begin at this second plateau as well. Um, they, uh, in the FAQ, they note that it is not true hallucinations, so not that you would see a fully developed image that is confused with reality, but instead um, a kind of pre-sensory effect they describe it as a kind of um, eidetic imagery, um, enhancement of imagination, and kind of uh, probably something like dreaming, or uh, I'm not sure, but it seems that they are associated to memory specifically, that you're recalling memories and re-simulating them, and also probably experiencing distortions of memory, I'm guessing. Um, and it says if actual hallucinations do exist, they tend to be abstract and cartoon-like, which is fairly interesting. And I want to remind you that what we're basically seeing here, what we're talking about, is that um, the effects of increasing stages of NMDA blockade. So presumably, the more uh, receptors are blocked, it is um, it is kind of uh, preventing you from accessing memory and your perception, which is causing a different interpretation of reality. Um, okay, so another thing that is discussed here is what is called Lilliputian hallucinations. These tend to be uh, like size hallucinations, for example. Things appear further or closer than they actually are, taller or um, shorter, and different things like this. And what's kind of interesting is that uh, schizophrenia, which involves NMDA, underactivity, which is probably pretty similar to blocking 
the NMDA receptor, they tend to experience body dysmorphia, which sounds like it is kind of Lilliputian in a sense. The author suggests that the nature of the hallucinations seem to depend on what is already stored in intermediate-term memory, so whatever you've experienced throughout the day or things that are really recent, that probably is true. I think that that's actually kind of interesting. What if it means that that the target of... I would presume that the way that the chemical is distributed might be along paths where NMDA receptors, like it'll tend to fall towards the most used NMDA receptors, is my guess, that the paths that molecules travel is structured or the path that neurotransmitters are uh, following probably tends to be the most activated pathways. And so when this dextromethorphan enters your system, it may be that, um, that essentially it follows these same paths and blocking the most used um, memories. And so... What's interesting is that, so, I think what I've noticed is that your memories might fade, like, whatever is the most uh, relevant to your life at the time, like, whatever your worldview is might be the first thing to go, and you might tend to actually... Um, experience something you might start to go backwards in age in some sense that your mentality is going back to the states of mind that were built upon different worldviews um, throughout your aging so and I've sort of noticed this myself especially with even cannabis which tends to have a um, NMDA reducing effects as well, but that's a little bit more fuzzy. I don't want to get into that, but I've noticed it with um, some other things as well. I'm not really going to go into that too much, but definitely I've noticed that that seems to be the case personally. And so it could be that intermediate term memories aren't yet they, that your mind has not built structures to um, send neurotransmitters down that way so much as of yet. So they may actually be protected against um, the natural tendency of this chemical to follow paths, like uh, paths based on frequency of use, I suppose. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to the cognitive and emotional effects. They claim the author claims that higher reasoning is still not appreciably appreciably affected at the second plateau. Um, they, they mention that um, in the higher range of the second plateau. So there is a change in self-referential thinking. This is kind of interesting because I believe this has to do with schizophrenia as well. Um, 
So um, this says as an example that if you say this statement is false, it's a sort of paradox, um, a semantic kind of paradox, because if you say this statement is false, is it true that it is a false statement? If so, then it is not a false statement. Um, it says that these ideas should become more understandable and more profound, both in the abstract and on a gut level. And um, let's see, it says to outside observers that a lot of this can seem sort of meaningless to others. Um, language begins to change in the second plateau. Language becomes more difficult. Um, difficulty in coordinating the mouth and tongue motions is in a noticed trend. And there, they claim that there might be a direct effect on language-producing centers of the brain. What's interesting there is, again, with schizophrenia, there uh, it is known that there's problems with, I think, Broca's area and also Wernicke's area. I'm fairly sure it's both, but it may be only one of those regions. And both of those regions are involved in processing um, language. Uh, both uh, They deal with, essentially, the meanings of words and the sounds of them and uh, creation of symbols and attachment of meaning to those symbols. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to go too much into that, though. So, um, let's see. There is a detachment, the previously mentioned detachment of shame and embarrassment, the disinhibition, tends to increase more at this plateau, they've stated. Um, they might, people might reveal secrets and such. And there's videos on YouTube, I think, of people on anesthesia um, doing exactly that. I'm not sure. It's kind of interesting. Um, okay, so memory effects. The, there is an effect on intermediate term memory and working memory. It says it might be very uh, severely disturbed. Um, that seems a little strange because it seemed to claim something about, or well, it said the hallucinations would be disturbed with intermediate or that they would be produced from intermediate-term memory. It could be that people are less able to recall these things on command. So that may be a factor. It may not be that you aren't having those memories, but that you can't control your mind, because NMDA receptors are involved in um, things like self-control, impulse control, and um, uh, working memory, executive functioning, which are all involved with self-control and self-directed activity actions and such. So it could be that 
a lot of that, because it says working memory may be severely disturbed. It could be that you're unable to choose what you recall anymore, and this may be why you start to experience the eidetic effects in the first place as well, because they might be naturally coming up almost, in a sense, on impulse rather than uh, consciously directed thought. And it could be that our constant use of consciously directed thought is what prevents us from experiencing this kind of eidetic experience in the first place. So if you don't know, eidetic just means um, like highly visual. So they're talking about specifically people who have um, highly visual um, memory experiences. So you, it's like uh, photographic memory in some sense. So people use eidetic memory to mean photographic memory. And they're talking about here is that you will basically like sit or lay down and experience uh, a stream of eidetic memories and experiences. Probably not entirely memories, probably also fabrications like dreams. Okay, so Next, they mention a transitional phase. Um, it said not everyone experiences it. Um, they describe it as being programmed in, that, in the sense that the content of this experience, although varying from individual to individual, does not change much from one in one experience to the next, so people can continue to have anesthesia and not um, not have a change in this phase, apparently. So let's see, they say that it is apparently a crossing of a threshold into dissociation. Their hypothesis is that, um, let's see, I'm going to read this verbatim because it's hard to kind of get what they're getting at. Okay, so generally speaking, sensory input competes with feedback input from the brain. You probably notice this from being deep in thought and not noticing what is going on around you. As sensory input becomes sufficiently inhibited, networks where sensory and feedback information are combined and reconciled, reconciled begin to gain a larger and larger proportion of their input from internal feedback sources. Eventually there is enough attenuation of sensory input and probably intermediate term memory as well that the feedback loop becomes free running leading to internal states or models if you prefer that are increasingly detached from the outside world. That kind of makes sense. I think that what they are describing in some sense is that we try to form meaning in the outside world, but as you become detached from the outside world, you're more expansively forming meaning, and technically you are not basing this meaning on external stimuli since that is being blocked out. So I think that kind of frees up the potential forms of meaning that you can create from the set of memory and external stimuli that you still have. And 
I think that sounds a lot like what dreaming is in some sense, but I think the dreaming is not caused by the same mechanism. I think um, I think dreaming is partially caused by a similar eidetic recall effect, though. Okay, so most um, the author states that people generally report that they can experience they can experience the process or they can discuss, relate, or write about it. It does not seem possible to experience it while attempting to maintain contact with the body in any way. Something that's interesting with that, as I noticed with most of these things that tend to block NMDA, it seems that if you actually sit or further deprive your senses or close your eyes, that most of the changes are enhanced. So I think all of that makes sense because if you are trying to um, trying to go back to the outside world, uh, it will diminish all of the effects. You're kind of activating NMDA, I presume. Okay, so let's see. I think I may just move on to the next section because, uh, let's see. So in the next sections, they call it the upper plateaus. They say that the effects becomes a lot more introspective, spiritual, and shamanic. What a crazy word to use, shamanic. But I think we shouldn't judge based on that word. For any of you that uh, don't like that, I would urge you to continue to take most of this seriously. Okay, so the third plateau. This is where things get increasingly intense. And now it says the visual flanging and loss of stereoscopic vision becomes so intense that your brain seems to completely give up trying to process vision, leading to what is known by the author as chaotic blindness. Simple images, for example, a candle flame, are still recognizable, although the loss of stereoscopic vision um, may tend to cause you to see two of everything. Okay, so let's see. Uh, these are the sensory effects, by the way. Um, it says, simple sounds are still understandable, and one can usually comprehend language, but they may need to speak it in a... Oh, wow. That's, see, this is one of the weird effects. It says that um, the language may need to be spoken in a rhythm to be understood, which is something very fascinating, because people can get brain damage and experience an inability to... Um, speak in normal uh, ways, but they, conti they continue to have the ability to speak emotionally and musically. So if they sing out their thoughts, it continues to still uh, work, but they cannot speak normally as I am right now. They would have to sing it or even cursing is usually 
um, uh, remains functional. And that sounds a lot like what's happening right here. Sounds like um, the ability to... Let's see, so, yeah. I think you understand what I mean at that point. Touch and taste are under mostly... Uh, mostly touch and taste are diminished at this stage. Uh, sense of touch, position of body, and balance are disrupted pretty strongly. People report that smell is still enhanced on the third plateau, which is very interesting. That is very peculiar. I didn't actually know that. It's kind of strange. I don't actually have a rationality for why that may be. Um, I mean, I know it must be partially due to the fact that smell is heavily linked closer to, I think it was the hippocampus, and it has a more direct connection to the memory. So, so it's probably that smell is more deeper into um, the core of everything somehow, like more primitive maybe even. It may be a more original sense before vision. I'm not sure on that though, but that might mean that all other systems would be affected before the molecule started to reach that region. That's probably the best I can do on that. Okay, so it says that hallucinations continue. Um, they may be more abstract and pre-sensory um, rather than pre predominantly visual. Um, there's a sensation of being surrounded by grayness. Um, with my own experience, I've noticed that in as it's uh, as the effects are increasing, that there's basically a strange visual striping kind of effect where in the center of my vision there's moving stripes that um, kind of slowly turned into a kind of pool of white noise that different borderline three-dimensional objects would kind of like swim and in and out of this lake of white noise and then later I noticed colors began to emerge and uh, more fully developed imagery was noted um, okay so Let's see, the cognitive and emotional effects. Um, cognitive function becomes severely disrupted, it says. Arithmetic would be difficult. Uh, reaction time is significantly delayed. Decision-making is somewhat degraded. Um, although conceptual thought is less affected than concrete thought. That is very interesting. Um, let's see. Language changes can be quite significant. Sentences may stretch on that, uh, or, or alternatively be very terse. See, th that's very interesting because that is noted as thought disorders of schizophrenia. They, they tend to experience stuff like that, run-on sentences, and, um repetitious ideas, uh, 
incoherency, word salad, uh, not speaking at all, or very short words is noted. Like that, I think that's called alogia. Alogia. It's like a logic, but not. It's not about logic. Uh, but anyway, so. Um, let's see, the normal chatter that goes on in everyone's brain tends to slow down or stop at this plateau, giving an experience of mental peace and quiet. That is pretty interesting. I think that, um, I've experienced stuff like that, and it's known that people, like, people will try to meditate to experience states like that, and it's known that meditation can provoke psychotic episodes, which I think is pretty relevant here again, as schizophrenia is linked to uh, low NMDA activity. And also, I should mention that um, these NMDA blocking substances are actually used in the literature as psychotomimetics, where it essentially just means that it mimics psychotic uh, states. Okay, so panic attacks have been observed at the third plateau. Um, let's see, that's probably due to the low GABA that would occur because it prevents, when you block NMDA receptors, it prevents GABA release. Let's see, um, people can get an experience of rebirth, they can have f uh, recall of suppressed or partially forgotten memories. See, I think this is an actual, actually a very valid experience, and this gets really interesting because now we can talk about near death. This is, this is about to get really, really far out. Okay, so... So, I think what can occur is that your memories are sort of organized by most remembered to least remembered, and that the paths in your brain essentially send neurotransmitters more towards what is most used, and not so much towards what is least used. And of course, that would mean that the forgotten memories are least used, right? So, um... So if you imagine that this is blocking all of these most used memories first, you can imagine also remember I brought up how it can cause glutamate release, which glutamate is the chemical that binds to NMDA. I hope that was apparent. I'm so sorry if if I mentioned glutamate before and that wasn't apparent. So glutamate... Um, the increase of release of glutamate, I think uh, it would be sent towards these lesser-used memories now because they can't bind towards the blocked ones, so they're, they will be redirected, and the increase of glutamate will allow more access to lesser-used memories. And what's very fascinating is that people often report with near-death experiences that your life flashes before your eyes. That is something very common in our cultures. And what's interesting 
is uh, there's a lot of research. I will post this if I remember. If I don't remember, please someone let me know. Um, you could also Google it if you type this out. Okay, so basically there's a bunch of studies that indicate involvement of agmatine, a neurotransmitter, in near-death experiences. Um, it's thought that agmatine levels will increase as you are dying or undergoing um, glutamate overstimulation. And um, there is known to be a glutamate release uh, as you're dying, I believe, or during stress. I'm not sure. I can't remember which one the author argued for. But basically, agmatine is the body's natural NMDA blocking substance. It is the um, anesthetic that is naturally occurring in your body. So this is pretty amazing because it kind of makes sense uh, with some of the stuff I was saying earlier. This is actually an epiphany I'm having in the moment. Just to clarify, I wasn't thinking about this when I made the claim earlier, but basically when I claimed that um, that what I've noticed is that it seems that you kind of de-age, you reverse your aging and experience all the states of mind that you previously used to have as your standard state of mind, probably because they were at one time most used, but as you've changed your state of mind, your daily state of mind, these older ones are less used, and so when you block the newer state of mind that is most used, you will tend to first start activating the last previous state that was most used, and you will continue until you've gone through many different age levels, I suppose. And that's interesting because that is pretty much the same idea as your life flashing before your eyes. So I think there might actually be some scientific merit to that idea. And yeah, that was a very... I'm pretty happy with realizing that right now. I'm kind of mind blown a little bit. Okay, so let's move on to the memory effects, I guess, of the third plateau. Says thoughts can get stuck into a loop. Um, memory and coding of the more mundane experiences of the trip tend to be very bad. I'm not sure how they can quantify that if you don't remember it, unless they mean that you vaguely remember it. Or probably, I guess, someone on the outside can tell you about the mundane things. And it makes sense because we would tend to memorize the most significant and impactful experiences in the first place. That's already known to occur psychologically. Okay, so... Some users report that there is a break in the continuity of their memory that almost like a close of one chapter and the beginning of another. And that's something... Oh, that's for the day after a third plateau experience. And that's very interesting because it kind of shuts down the old worldview and it might even 
somehow impact the quality of those memories, I'm guessing. Um, on the next day, I mean, that when you block your uh, most used memories, that those memories might be impacted the next day. Um, so that kind of goes back into how I was saying that my concept for how uh, these NMDA blockers might be able to treat severe cases of depression, that it's kind of reversing the tolerance to things by stopping them. Like, so it's already obvious that if someone stops drinking coffee, that their tolerance will go back down, that they will have a higher sensitivity to it. And it's known that many things you do, if you do them repetitiously, the impact is less. And that even kind of ties with the concept of how we would memorize the most impactful things in a way. Well, no, I don't know if... Uh, I'm not going to go in that direction. But... Basically, I think if you can turn off your experience of life, all of your memories, all of your habits and different things, that you are taking a break from the coffee of life in some sense, if that makes sense. Because your daily life, I don't, I don't think it's that different than consuming coffee. I think most of what you do is utilizing similar... Um, kind of brain activity. Uh, no, that was kind of vague. So what I mean is that um, the same way you can build tolerance to coffee, you can build it to video games, you can probably build it to uh, exercise, build it to eating habits that so you can get addicted to almost anything. But, okay, so, yeah, basically the idea is that I think people who are depressed can get a break from life and that the one it's the next day they will experience a heightened sense of life in general which they will find as positive because it restores the euphorias they experience maybe even the pain but i think a lot of people get depressed from repetition and a lack of novelty and I do know there was a study that people, the difference between OCD and depression, that there was a difference where OCD lacks the novelty seeking trait, which is really interesting because it could be that depressed people are novelty seekers who don't experience enough novelty or that life can't even provide that level of novelty for them to be happy. and. And it's kind of also interesting because the novelty-seeking genes are implicated in uh, addiction. And it could be that the gene simply makes it so you build a tolerance quicker to everything in your life. It could be that the purpose evolutionary, evolutionarily is for us to build a tolerance to whatever we're living in, the familiar and the common and have a desire to move beyond it. It is like a progressive gene, and that might make sense for why it's linked to migration, like migration out of Africa, essentially. The migration distance is linked to longer uh, 
polymorphisms of that gene. Okay, so anyways, let's get back to this paper. Uh, the fourth plateau here is maybe the craziest one. Okay, so they say it is becoming more fully dissociative. Um, let's see, I'm going to try to skip through and find the most interesting parts. Um, okay, so here it goes. It says, generally, people entering the fourth plateau report that they lose all contact with their bodies, often suddenly. This can be somewhat frightening. In particular, the sense of breathing is one of those missing, and people have occasionally interpreted this as evidence that they were dead. The surrounding environment may even be colored, usually gray or white, or it may be appear a vividly realistic or cartoon-like, or anywhere in between these. So I think what's interesting about the idea of um, sensory decay is that, uh, I don't know if I should make this claim, but I think it's possible that um, depending on maybe the amount of effect that's occurring with this dextromethorphan that uh, sensation could be enhanced, possibly because you are blocking the um, this sort of, I think that some of, okay, let me think how to say this. So with illusions, for example, I think one of the purposes is to reduce the information into more uh, uh, qualitative packets of information rather than a high quantity of information. You kind of trade off the detail in order to um, experience a more easily digestible information that allows you to process other things with your mind rather than just your senses. And I think that's kind of how learning is supposed to help, that our sensory learning is that we can build a bunch of assumptions, recognize a lot of patterns so that we can navigate in a more automated way. It's a automation of perception in some sense. That's that's where I was getting at with the autocorrect idea. And so when you reduce this, I think you return to earlier states of perception where you did not yet learn to reduce your perception so that you're actually experiencing a more full reality on some level, but I think it gets really tricky because you're also probably blocking the actual sensation. So in some sense, it's imitating uh, being younger, probably, but it's also probably imitating um, a loss of sensation. Not even imitating, it's literally shutting down your senses. So, for example, when you're younger, you do not experience the motor disturbances that this chemical would induce. So, it's clear that it's not just reversing your age, it's more of a combination, probably. Okay, so... Um, the cartoon-like effect, I think, is a product of the reduction 
because clearly cartoons are usually a reduced experience of reality or real-time footage. It's not not even 3D, usually. So, okay, so many experience out-of-death, or no, uh, out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences. They experience a contact with other beings whose reaction to the user is somewhere between curiosity and amusement. So, this is particularly interesting because in my own experience, the, I've, no, I've had an experience where hmm, I've seen what appeared to be an alien species overlooking Earth, teaching its children that the Earthlings are highly immoral and inefficient with their living style. Uh, the experience was kind of vague, but it was easy to notice that what was going on, there was a sense of meaning and narrative going on in it without words. There were, I couldn't under, really understand anything the alien creatures were saying. They were kind of hovering above Earth as an ethereal uh, cosmic creature made out of stardust or something like this. It wasn't really realistic at all. Um, but it was kind of interesting. I think that there's a lot of weird things that we could theorize about some of these experiences. Um, I've noticed an experience of feeling like I'm in a bubble, and I've noticed other people tell me this as well. And I kind of wonder that it may be allowing you to recall the experience of being in your mother's womb. And that maybe as you're born, your perception is not developed enough for object recognition. And that things might be much more fuzzy like stardust, like a cosmic soup. And that... Um, it's kind of tricky. I think that you could be framing those memories of being in the womb against the newer memories of your uh, adult life and kind of mixing those together to create the experiences that we have uh, like these ones. Okay, so... Delusions become fairly involved at this plateau. This is the fourth plateau. Um, many do not realize that they are on dextromethorphan anymore at this point. They forget. And um, some people might think things very absurdly, such as, I am a flower in the middle of a field. And... Yeah, that definitely would seem to fall more in line with the schizophrenia thing, but I don't think that schizophrenia is this severe. I would say that it's very highly unlikely for schizophrenics to ever be this severe. I think that this is an artificially induced hyperpsychosis, I would call it. Um, let's see. I can read off. Here's an interesting thing. They have a experience listed here. I'm just going to read it verbatim. 
I've come to the conclusion that DXM is almost unique in its ability to create a truly alien experience, one in which major aspects of one's humanity can become entirely irrelevant. Most obviously, one's body can be left behind or even forgotten. The experience of becoming or encountering bizarre life forms seems at least somewhat common, as are weird horizonless landscapes or spacescapes. I think a lot of this alienness comes from having so many of one's ties to the familiar severed. When your body is gone, your mind loses its senses of how big or small you are in relation to your surroundings. Hence, hallucinations of huge things like galaxies or of being as large as a mountain or as small as an atom. I think the brain also misses subtle clues like the sensation of breathing, blood flowing, through your veins, things which help you remind you that you're human, and at some point even your memories of the familiar may be suppressed. I really liked this reading. Okay, so now to analyze it. Okay, so again with this seeing bizarre beings, I think it's possible that it's not even just... Uh, birth experiences or womb experiences, but also um, experiences in early life before you even usually remember most of the experiences. And I would argue that the reason you don't memorize or remember these experiences often is because partially due to what is known as context-dependent memory, I think that we sort of form a kind of uh, well, let me think how to get into this. I think that the experiences, because they are so undeveloped in early life, almost have no contextual relevance uh, to our later life. And I think there's an age where we begin to make sense of the world in a way that is still relatable to our adult lives. But I think that... Before this point, there is not much that you can really relate with, and I think you also don't use those interpretations of the world because they were so flawed because of the lack of, I guess, um, experience with the world. A lot of your conclusions are wrong about things, and probably... Realize, like, for example, you might realize that your mom is an entity at a certain point in life. That kind of realization, I'm not sure. You, you wouldn't have any concept of family, of the fact that you were necessarily born from the person. But, that, but that's kind of weird, because I don't know how much of the memories in that kind of world view... Are associated to each other. So, for example, maybe if you experience what it's like to be a th three-month-old, you might still vividly remember your birth experience, but later, I think your sense of perception and illusions, essentially, do not really match up with the kind of perceptions of those experiences, because they're not developed yet. So, I think that there's a disconnect, like a kind of wall that prevents memories from crossing. So 
if you were to cross over that wall again, then you would remember what it's like to experience those things, but it, you probably, once you're back into the adult self, would not necessarily rationalize that that's what you experience because you would think that your birth experience is three-dimensional you would think it is having object recognition in the familiar sense of the concepts you would think a lot of things and i think that's just not the case and i think the reason we don't remember those things is because we just simply don't recall them because they are so vastly alien to what we usually know of and I think this can set your mind back and make you forget everything that you've learned in your life up to the point of basically the birth experience. And I would even argue that in some sense it is similar to the, uh, there's probably, uh, you could probably make an argument that being in a state of total anesthesia where you lose consciousness is somewhat like what it's uh, somewhat uh, that that's probably what it's like to be dead on some level or maybe very very close at the very least okay so there is one last plateau but it is called plateau sigma it's not usually associated with dosage necessarily it seems to be that um redosing uh, over a period of time and remaining in that state is probably the defining factor so probably the amount of time you spend not having memories probably causes you to form new memories which kind of goes back into the um that idea that um i think in some sense, what psychedelics do is promote NMDA activity and promote learning, and that this causes you to form new illusions, form illusions faster, which I think accounts for a lot of the visual effects that occur. And I think that that's why people find a new sense of meaning uh, after taking these chemicals. And I think that... What basically happens is that it accelerates your formation of an ideas in general. It f uh, accelerates your rationalization of things. I think it accelerates your perceptual uh, kind of conclusions, like illusions, essentially. Um, but anyway, so I think with dextromethorphan um when you stay if you stay long enough i think that actually gives you enough time to form these conclusions naturally so i think what occurs on psychedelics is just an acceleration of what naturally occurs and uh, if you spend enough time with a low nmda activity i think you tend to form more strange ideas and what's noticed about this plateau sigma is that it's pretty much linked to psychotic breaks most people will become paranoid it takes longer for them to recover they have uh, they report vivid entirely realistic contacts with alien entities spirits gods and etc um 
often this occurs even with their eyes open, so it there that is pretty interesting. Um, it mentions how the eyes don't seem to sync with the inner 3D model of the world. When you look from side to side, the world lurches back and forth for a moment. And what's interesting about that is that um, in psychotic individuals, there is a psychotic eye movement change where they basically can check for psychosis. I don't know if it proves anything, but they notice that psychotic people, when you try to get them to follow your finger, if you you basically hold a finger up and move it from side to side and have their eyes track it. When psychotic people do this, it is not a smooth eye tracking. The eye tends to jump. And I think it's interesting because it might be related to this kind of effect. I think part of that actually is related to illusions because I think there is an illusion that allows us to kind of uh, well, I don't know if I would call it an illusion, but I think we automate the tracking effects somehow, possibly. Or maybe it depends on stereoscopic vision. I'm not really sure. Now, I think I'm actually pretty content with where we're at right now. I think this is going to be it. Um... I hope that you enjoyed this. This was pretty crazy. I had some epiphanies there that I didn't really realize. And I'm actually planning to write out a bunch of stuff about illusions and my theories uh, pertaining to NMDA's involvement in illusions. So some of this is kind of a brainstorm on what I'm already working on. And once that's released, I will let all of you know it should be pretty awesome. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. I will try to leave you with my one of my trippy or inspiring uh, mystical songs that I have produced. And again, um, I currently don't really make any money off this project. So if you could consider uh, purchasing my music, that would be kind of awesome. Uh, I have the link for that probably in the description here. I also just created a Patreon account, so I'm hoping that um, that will end up going somewhere. Um, I'll link that in the description as well. Um, thank you for listening. I hope this was a pretty fascinating episode. I enjoyed it. And see you next time.